You're listening to East Bay Yesterday, the podcast that looks back at stories from Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, and other towns throughout Alameda and Contra Costa County. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. And then there's the other story when he jumped on a military oh. train and they pointed a Tommy gun at him and no, he had a... where they were shooting. <laughs> yeah. Like, thank God they missed. Train, train <laughs> used to pass by Mexicali with, uh, with tanks on it and stuff. So he decided to try to get on that thing and he started shooting. Crazy <laughs> kid. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I always say, if it wasn't for a train going too fast and my grandparents running out of money in Oakland, <laughs> I wouldn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the voices of Tina Ramos and her mother. Natividad Ramos. They're sitting at a table inside La Boricana, which is one of the oldest Mexican restaurants in Oakland until it closed last year. They're reminiscing about Antonio Ramos, who was Tina's dad and Natividad's husband. As a boy growing up in Mexico, Antonio liked to jump on the trains that would pass through his village. One day, he jumped on a train that was going too fast. And since he couldn't jump off, he rode it all the way up to the San Diego-Tijuana border. This was during World War II. And since the Navy base in San Diego needed lots of food to feed all those sailors, Antonio got a job as a baker. After the war, he kept moving north. At the time, the Mexican neighborhood in Oakland was located around 7th Street, stretching roughly between Broadway and Adeline. This is where Antonio came looking for work. He found a job as a baker at La Boricana. He fell in love with the owner's daughter, and they soon had a baby girl. Because of the steady job and the baby, the U.S. government eventually decided to let Antonio stay in the country, even though he came here undocumented. This story, the story of how Natividad met her husband, and how Tina's dad began his life in Oakland, is one of the many stories centered around La Boricana. Today's episode of East Bay Yesterday is going to look at quite a few of those stories, and in doing so, we're going to explore a lost neighborhood, the history of Mexican food in the United States, and what the idea of quote-unquote community really means as a city grows and changes. We're also going to take a few little detours to talk about the history of two of Tina's favorite topics, tamales and Dia de los Muertos. But don't worry, all the different flavors in these stories blend together, like the spices that make up a mole sauce. Which brings me to a warning. Warning, do not listen to this episode on an empty stomach. Okay, before we go any further, let's take a step back and talk about how it all started. What year was it? I keep saying 44. Right. Yeah. And Grandma and Grandpa were on their way to San Francisco from Los Angeles. Yes. And they stayed here in Oakland, yeah. But why? Because they didn't have a quarter to pay for the ferry. (laughs) Natividad's mother, Rosa, was from Mexico. Her father, Adriano Velasquez, was from Puerto Rico. They met and fell in love in Los Angeles in the early 1940s but decided to head north to San Francisco due to some mysterious circumstances. Anyway, Rosa and Adriano arrived in Oakland broke and didn't have money for that final push across the bay to San Francisco. So they decided to stay put here. Adriano got a job at the Bethlehem Steel Shipyard in Alameda, and Rosa stumbled somewhat accidentally into owning a small grocery store. An old Italian man, was trying to get rid of his shop actually sold it to Rosa on credit. She had so little money at the time, Rosa had to collect coins from her neighbors to stock the register on the first day of business. Rosa let her Puerto Rican husband name the shop, and he chose the name La Borequeña, which means Puerto Rican woman. Natividad is 85 now, but smiles brightly as she remembers growing up in the store and working there with her mom and her siblings. 
We worked there, we lived there. <laughs> Even I was telling when the weather was nice, my mother, the thing was, as long as the sun was out, the store was open. When we'd put boxes out in front and sit out in front, somebody came, you went inside and you <laughs> waited on them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When did you start working the counter? Okay, when I was 12. Okay. Yeah. And could you reach everything? No, I had to stand up on a box to read the scale. <laughs> what kind of box was it? I've never asked you that. Was it no, milk crate? A little wooden or a wood box. box? A little wooden box, yeah. This area of Oakland has gone through many transitions over the years. The neighborhood church, Old St. Mary's, went from being mostly Irish to Italian and then Mexican as the barrio bloomed and Oaklanders of European descent move north and east. Although the barrio of her girlhood is gone, Natividad still remembers it vividly. When I asked her about it, she drew a map on the table with her finger, tracing the geography of a fading past with little help from her daughter. You could wander around. The Mexican theater was on Market Street, the Star Theater, yeah, yeah. It was Amer American movies, and then when, after it turned to Spanish-speaking, yeah. Okay. And then there was the creamery. And the ice cream, yeah, across the street from us. And the billiards. They, yeah, and the billiards, yeah. And, and, and all kind of little businesses along 7th Street. But everything disappeared. We were the only ones left here in the Mexicali Rose. Then it all disappeared. Indeed. There isn't much left to indicate what used to be here. Unlike, for example, the famous jazz district that used to exist a little farther down 7th Street, and the politically influential Pullman Porters who anchored the black district of West Oakland during its thriving heyday, this barrio and the people who lived here are rarely mentioned in the history books. But this was a thriving neighborhood too, even though you don't hear much about it. I mean, we could talk about when all the little Latina ladies went to work at the canneries because mm -hmm. all the men had gone off to war and they needed workers. I mean, you mm -hmm. hear about Rosie the Riveter, but you don't really hear too much about the, the, the little Latina ladies of Del Monte canneries. Mm -hmm. They existed, you know, because you, you did what you did to get by. And you were very proud about that. Natividad still remembers when the streets were bustling. And Tina remembers when it all started to change. Washington Street, there were all kinds of people walking around. And when after the war, it just went down, down, down. and So there were trains on all the wide streets with, with the cobblestone had, yeah, had yeah. trains on mm -hmm. them. And, on the and people, people always ask about that, like, why did the trains go away? So mm -hmm. because um, the car manufacturers bought the train uh -huh, companies yeah. and got rid of the trains, so you had to buy a car. Yeah, yeah. And because there were so many cars in the city, had to build freeways, and the freeways yeah, yeah. destroyed all the community. And they're like, seriously? Seriously. Yeah. There is some controversy over this interpretation of events. Some people blame the downfall of the key system on other factors as well. But if you're interested, look up General Motors Streetcar Conspiracy on Wikipedia, and you'll find a lot of evidence to support what Tina just said. On a related note, the building that we were sitting in when I interviewed Natividad and Tina hadn't always been the home of La Boricana. When Rosa first opened the shop in 1944, it was located at the corner of 5th and Brush Street. After operating for three years, they got their first eviction notice. That block was to be demolished to make room for the new Nimitz Freeway, also known as Interstate 880. After the state used an order of eminent domain to push them out, they moved a few blocks over to 7th and Castro Street. About 30 years later, the same thing happened again. Only this time, it was the 980 that was pushing them out instead of the 880. Again, they moved a few blocks down 7th Street, where La Boricana remained between Jefferson and Clay until 2015, when they finally closed up shop after about 70 years in business. Tina is still a little bitter about the way this all went down. The shop was moved twice due to eminent domain. Yeah. 
They showed up with a letter and a, and a below market value check and said, mm -hmm. see you later. Yeah. I mean, they always try to say it was fair, but mm -hmm. typically it wasn't. No. And generally it was immigrant communities who had origins in countries where government and police and all that really weren't trusted per se. Mm -hmm. So here you're in America, you know, living the dream, supposedly, mm -hmm. and the, the government essentially comes through and says, move along. Mm -hmm. And you don't know you have rights. You don't know to fight back because you're grateful to be somewhere safe where you're, you're working hard to support your family. And I think that was what was sad, that it disrupted so many pre-existing communities. I mean, mm -hmm. West Oakland became very detached. It used to be a middle-class African-American community. The train porters and their families lived there had a thriving, you know, businesses, entertainment, clubs. Mm -hmm. And then this area was the Latino barrio. What you know is the Fruitvale District is younger than me as a Latino neighborhood. It didn't exist until I was two because mm -hmm. everyone migrated to East Oakland. This is why so much of the history of this neighborhood has been forgotten. It's not just that businesses closed or families moved. The neighborhood was literally erased. Everything was bulldozed and carried off to the landfills. The freeway coming through the second time essentially destroyed 50 residential blocks of homes. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine that, not 50 families, not 50 homes, 50 blocks. And you'll hear the elders talk about the old neighborhood uh, with a sense of longing. I listened to that all my life. And it's too bad that we're closed now because you could hang out here on a Saturday and people would just spontaneously have little, little mini neighborhood reunions, family reunions, because we had customers. We were already on our fourth generation as shopkeepers, but also of customers. La Boricana wasn't just a restaurant. It was also a mini grocery store and a bakery. And while it served excellent food, that's not the only reason why customers kept coming back for four generations. During its first few decades in business, La Boricana was one of the few places in the Bay Area where Latino immigrants could find food and ingredients that connected them to their homelands. So shopping or eating there wasn't like shopping in a regular grocery store or just eating at your friendly neighborhood diner. It was a way to stay connected to your heritage and to maintain your traditions while living in this foreign new country. Back in the old days, you would get people who came in to buy their staples because, you know, American food really hadn't become part of the immigrant experience. They still ate the food of the homeland. So they needed tortillas and pan dulce and, and canned goods so they could cook because um, things didn't exist. How far away would people come from to shop at La Borinquena? All over, they'd come because Napa. Mi Rancho was the first Mexican store and my mother was the second. And they'd come from, from Napa, San Francisco, all over, yeah, yeah. I mean, we think it's so uh -huh. easy to just go to your city's mm -hmm. barrio <laughs> or Chinatown or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, ethnic demographic mm -hmm. product you need. Well, now you even see it in the regular grocery stores, which is kind of kind of interesting because yeah. the same um, way everybody has yeah, stuff now. Because right? back back in the day, you know, we were the resource for yeah. for those things because that's simply how people ate. Mm -hmm. right, right. It it wasn't Mexican food. It was how your family and, nourished and, itself. Yeah, and our big thing was tamales. But so that was later. Would come all over for tamales. That, yeah. that wasn't until yeah, yeah. till the migration started to East Oakland. Yeah. Of course Mexican food didn't stay hard to find in the Bay Area forever. During the late 1970s and 1980s, the Latino population of the Fruitvale District exploded. It wasn't just Mexicans who had been displaced from the old barrio anymore. There was a wave of immigrants from Central America fleeing war and political upheaval, and many of these refugee families opened up shops and restaurants in East Oakland. And of course, Mexican food is delicious so it just became easier to find it pretty much everywhere. Some of La Boricana's loyal customers would still make a special trip over to 7th and Jefferson occasionally, but the client base that had supported them for so long was starting to disappear. Here's Tina again. 
even though the residential community was gone, people would still come, which they did for, I want to say, another decade or so. Yeah, yeah. But then Fruitvale really built out. Mm-hmm. And then you started seeing, you know, a market on every corner. In order to stay popular in this neighborhood that had been gutted by two freeways amidst all this new competition, La Boricana needed a secret weapon. And this is where those tamales that Natividad was talking about a minute ago come onto the scene. But before we get into the mouth-watering story of what made La Boricana's tamales so special, here's Tina with a crash course in tamale history. Back in the old, old days, they yeah. were the, origi- the original battle rations uh-huh. because they were in a little compact mm-hmm. self single serving yeah. <laughs> corn husk and you could heat them over the coals. People don't realize that when men went to battle, they took cooks with them. Mm-hmm. And when they didn't take cooks, they took tamales. Mm-hmm. Later on, the tradition behind, you know, this growing the corn, drying it and going through the whole process of, of creating the masa and then creating a, a special dish, Christmas, um, baptisms, mm-hmm. weddings, yeah. funerals, anything that took 12 steps plus, mm-hmm. took more than a few people, mm-hmm. was something to be um, cherished. People don't realize that back in the, in the homeland, tamales are a big deal. Mm-hmm. Having tamales made for you is an honor. Mm-hmm. Back on the ranch, mm-hmm. they didn't just kill slaughter animals to have meat every day. Meat, meat was, was a big... And that's why they would break down the animals and use all the parts. That's why mm-hmm. you see so many recipes. Mm-hmm. And, and then if, once you ran out of meat, if you still had lard, that at least gave your food that, that extra little punch, that kick mm-hmm. of flavor. And having people who lovingly crafted all these things made things taste that much better. Mmm, lard. Are you hungry yet? I didn't mention this earlier, but many people actually know Tina Ramos as Tina Tamale. She even has her own amazing Tina Tamale logo. Her mobile food truck was called the Tamale Transporter. And I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but the first time I emailed Tina to ask if she would do this interview with me, I started out the message with Dear Ms. Tamale. So yeah, she's all about that tamale life. And you're about to find out why she truly lived up to her name. Um, what was interesting about our tamales, even though we have refrigeration and we had an electric molino, it still took us three days to make our tamales because we still had to cook the dehydrated corn, make it into nixtamal, process that, that the, the, the masa through our molino, mix it. We have to cook the meat a day in advance, then chop it, shred it, prepare it, or even your filling. You never put a hot filling in, a, in, in raw corn dough. During the busy Christmas season, the La Boricana crew sometimes cranked out 12,000 tamales in the week leading up to baby Jesus' birthday. 12,000 tamales. Even knowing that each of these tamales were handmade and not coming off an automated assembly line in some factory, I still didn't totally understand how much work went into this process. Here's another lesson in tamaleology from Tina. What is the molino? The molino is the, the grinder, corn, corn the grinder. stone grinder. Like two bricks. How did that work? It's okay. literally in your mind, Fred Flintstone mm-hmm. wheels, two stone wheels, and they rub up against one another, mm-hmm. and they would grind the corn. Oh. And you would just kind of sprinkle the, the corn kernels in there, the dry corn kernels, so, and you would grind them so, into the so, powder? No, no, no. Yeah. So nixtamal is we take the dried corn, and we would mix it with food gray lye, which we call in Spanish cal. And you would cook that. That was what another day, because mm-hmm. you'd have to cook the, the corn, let it cool. Overnight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it would look like unfried corn nuts. Mm-hmm. And then you, you put that, you process that through the molino, and then you get corn masa. The same nixtamal, if you rinse it and add cold water and put it on the stove like beans, turns into hominy mm-hmm. that you see in pozole mm-hmm. and everything. And then if we were in the American South, then they would grind that up and then it turns into grits Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it was always kind of interesting to see how the cultural overlaps of using a very basic in this case corn how that gave life to so many different cultures so you know you'd have to we would take those extra steps there's a lot of in in the last i would say 10 to 15 years industrialized you know masarina that's which is dehydrated corn flour 
and we can get into an entirely other political, socioeconomic, uh, you know, genetically modified, you know, there's so many different versions of taking something so basic as corn and just really destroying its essence in the name of, of making things faster, quicker, more cheaply produced. And, and people could use it, buy it, and keep it in storage. Whenever they decided to make something, they had the flower. See, we could still look at it in a positive way, but then when it started destroying the tradition, mm -hmm. because it was easier for like a lot of the large tortilla factories to switch over to corn flour instead of doing the additional step of cooking corn and mm -hmm. creating fresh masa and having mm -hmm. to deal with a perishable product. And it was just faster and easier. This conflict between the deliciousness of real, made-from-scratch food, which doesn't last very long because it's not loaded up with chemical preservatives, versus the accessibility and affordability of mass-market industrialized food that lasts forever, this is a choice that really boils down to priorities. On a larger scale, it's about what, as a society, do we value? As I listened back to this interview, this question reminded me of something else. Natividad told me about why sometimes people in her family were reluctant to go to the market just around the corner, which was then known as Housewives Market. And a quick side note for the history heads. Yes, a smaller version of Housewives was later reborn as Swan's Market. Here's Natividad, and then Tina. My mother would tell my husband, let's go to Housewives. And he said, sometimes he would go, but he said, sometimes no, because just on Jefferson Park, everybody she knew would stop and talk to her. <laughs> so it would take forever to get to Housewives, yeah. And, yeah. and I think that yeah. kind of goes back to we've lost that sense of yeah. neighborhood. Yeah. Where you greet, you, you just don't greet your neighbor. You know them by name. The kids go to school together. You worship mm -hmm. at the same church. Mm -hmm. You shop at the same stores. Mm -hmm. That That's really gone away. Yeah. I moved back to this neighborhood in 2000, and I was part of Old Oakland Neighbors, which was our grassroots community group. It still exists. Mm -hmm. and, and that was that whole sense of not creating but rebuilding a sense of, of neighborhood where you watched out for each other. Like mm -hmm. if you saw something funny happening at the house next door, you would, you would call up, hey, do you, do you have somebody working on your house? Or like, why is this red truck in your driveway? Mm -hmm. You know, people, people don't want to get involved. And, and back then, we, we laughed too how kids would get in trouble. Like mm -hmm. you would do something, and by the time you got home, your, your parent, mama knew. Your mama knew. <laughs> and there were no cell phones. There was no, like, like whoa. <laughs> so you behaved because it got back. Uh -huh. And then you got in trouble. So what do you value more, privacy or security? Do you want to live on the kind of block where neighbors are expected to acknowledge each other and talk to each other and look out for each other? Or maybe you move from a small town to an urban area to get away from that kind of vibe. Sure, it's nice to be able to run down to the corner store when you're in a rush without having to dodge a gauntlet of conversations. But isn't it sometimes nice to have spontaneous encounters with your friends in person and not just keep up with them through Facebook? Imagine just being able to knock on your friend's door to say hi and maybe run inside for a plate of food because whatever is coming out of the kitchen smells so damn good. Instead of needing to schedule a happy hour drink or a dinner date weeks in advance. Tina, what was her favorite thing about working at La Boricana? Her answer brings up another one of these examples that illustrates the downsides of convenience and today's culture of having whatever we want, whenever we want it. My favorite part is going back to listening to all the stories. Oh, yeah. I loved hearing the stories or just seeing the happiness in people's mm -hmm. eyes when they would come in and see her mm -hmm. and then pick up things that that they were like, oh, I, I moved and, you know, I'm here in town and I needed some tamales and some tortillas. And 
you know, 20, 20, 30 years ago when if you moved to like the Midwest, you know, you were lucky if you had Taco Bell. That was, you know, <laughs> the Mexican restaurant in town. <laughs> so you would see people here, you know, they moved for whatever reason, work or, or the service and yeah. they'd come and buy just like chili powders and like all this stuff to take back so they could continue to cook things. Yeah. And it was happy. Mm -hmm. Of course, moving to a town with no access to real Mexican food must have sucked for those people. But that scarcity is exactly what made it so special when they came here. Think about how good you feel when you go back home after you've been gone for a long time and your mom or your dad or your grandma makes you your favorite home-cooked meal. That sense of relishing something special is why Tina remembers this place as being so happy back then. Now, I know that many people are still living with scarcity and don't have enough to eat, but for those of us who do have the privilege of being able to say, I want Mexican food or Burmese food or barbecue and being able to get it pretty much whenever we want, well, it doesn't necessarily diminish the taste of the food, but it does mean that we're not getting that overwhelming rush of gratitude that comes with experiencing something truly rare. Okay, I have a confession to make. It's not something I'm proud of, but here we go. I really like the bean burritos from Taco Bell. As a little kid, I was being raised by a single dad for a while, and when he was busy, we would go to T-Bell, and he would get us a big bag of bean burritos, and I loved them, and I still buy them from time to time. <sighs> what makes this confession even worse is the fact that not only is Taco Bell not real Mexican food, but burritos aren't real Mexican food either. The origin of burritos is somewhat mysterious, but they're definitely not authentic Mexican. They were probably invented north of the border. Given Tina's deep respect for the cuisine of her ancestors, I had to ask her what she thought of Taco Bell's bastardization of her heritage. She likes to go there. Okay, so <laughs> it's not so much a like, it's a childhood craving. Yeah. So here's the deal. Mm -hmm. Back in the 70s, mm -hmm. you knew your immigrant family or your, your ethnic family or however, mm -hmm. your not white family had made it when they could afford mm -hmm. processed food. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you could have TV dinners, mm -hmm. box cereal, and eat fast food, mm -hmm. ooh, we, mm -hmm. you know, the, the dream was alive and kicking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Being Mexican-American, you know, I've gotten that grief from people's like, you eat Taco Bell? <laughs> and I was like, well, do you eat those crappy snack cakes that come out of the box? So in a lot of ways, I think it, it's, it, it allowed Mexican influence to become mainstream. But, you know, it's, 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 one of, it's part of the fabric of America. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It just is. Now, the fact that the gentleman who started Taco Bell stole the recipe from the nice Mexican taco stand from across the street, <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> His name was Glenn Bell. That's why it's called Taco Bell. <laughs> and the little stand across the street made delicious pre-fried shell tacos. Mm -hmm. And one day he casually went over and talked the owner up and being the gracious Latino hospitable, mm -hmm. you know, guy that the owner was, and I can't think of his name and I should really know his name too, said, yeah, come on into the kitchen. Let me show you. Yeah. That's another story. There's a book called Taco USA. Mm -hmm. um, the writer who wrote it, um, Gustavo Arellano, he mm -hmm. writes for the OC. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he does I, the Ask a Mexican column. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. And he writes about all of this stuff about, you know, the, the evil maseca, you know, and, and how our recipes were stolen. But it's also really interesting history just to hear the, the migration of our people and, and the, however way you want to phrase it, the mainstreaming or, or the stealing. So despite the dubious origins of Taco Bell, Tina does see the mainstreaming of, let's call it Mexican-influenced food, as a positive. For one thing, the broadening of the American palate started bringing in a new kind of customer to La Boricana. 
Well, even back in the 90s, when I first came back mm -hmm. uh, to work here, that's when like the Chronicle and different magazines would um, print Latino recipes. So you would get straight up non-Latino people coming in here looking for, you know, do you carry nopales? Do you carry chipotles? Do you carry... Jalapenos? <laughs> yeah. And they would walk in really tentatively and look at me, and they would ask me that, and then I would answer in English, and they were so excited because they knew they could have a full-fledged conversation. <laughs> Tina and Natividad aren't purists. Unlike, say, people from Chicago, who are so offended anytime someone dares to squirt ketchup on a hot dog, the Ramos women are more amused or even appreciative when customers would add their own twists to traditional dishes. We would giggle when somebody would say, so I'm going to make chilaquiles, and I was wondering what kind of chicken do I put in it? And we would be like, giggle, giggle. And we're like, you, you know, that's peasant food. You like, well, you were grateful you, you had some stale tortillas and an egg. The egg, the egg was like the, mm, we're going to make chilaquiles. <laughs> we're like, chicken. And it was like, yeah, we love this Californiaized, you know, Mexican food. And the person was like, not to offend. I mean, it sounds delicious what you want to do. but <laughs> Whether you want to call it fusion, or Americanization, or assimilation, or cultural appropriation, or whatever, for Tina, what it really comes down to is intention. Are you Glenn Bell ripping off the taco vendor on the corner? Or are you approaching Latino culture with a sense of respect and admiration? I always feel when someone embraces a, a culture not of their own, respectfully, with reverence, and, and they feel it in their alma, in their soul, I'm fine with it. Whether we're talking about Rick Bayless, or whether we're talking about, you know, people who, you know, join the Peace Corps and then come back wearing all the, the embroidered, you know, handmade goods, but they, they, it touched them. I'm okay with that. As you might have guessed if you've ever seen the Tina Tamale logo, which represents her as a calavera, for the gringos out there, that means a skull, she's kind of obsessed with Dia de los Muertos. Apparently, one of her friends told her that it might not be such a good idea to try to sell food using, you know, a dead person, but she proved them wrong with her many years of success. I asked her about this logo and why there's still a Day of the Dead altar in the corner of her shop. I'm a Day of the Dead head year-round. My grandmother Rosa was born on Day of the Dead. She died eight years before I was born. Mm. I never knew her in life, mm. but she's, she's here. Yeah. Part of the reason why I, I was so drawn to the holiday was because I enjoy talking about my grandmother and mm. I wanted to feel connected to her. Mm. And in a lot of ways, the, the belief that it's supposed to be once a year, mm. you know, our, our ancestors come back to visit mm. us. Mm. But I always tell people, it's like all the people who came before you mm. helped create who you are today. Mm -hmm. And and I think that that's what I find so engaging about mm -hmm. history is mm -hmm. just like how things came to be. Mm -hmm. It's like, and I think going back to Day of the Dead, um, I was we never really celebrated it as as a family. Mm -hmm. It was something that I embraced when I got older, mostly yeah, yeah. mostly when, out of respect we were, to my grandmother. When we were little, they didn't have all that stuff. How do you think it went from being sort of like a forgotten or neglected? festival, holiday, event, to kind of having this resurgence in, in recent years. <laughs> we could, were talking about Spaniards and stuff, you know, the colonization and, mm -hmm. and the Spaniards and Christianity got rid of all the indigenous holidays. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of the reason why it was suppressed. It was pushed, it was pushed out. It was really a harvest festival in the summer, mm -hmm. and then the Christians changed it to All Souls Day and All Saints Day to coincide. It was pushed to the side because it was part of that culture that was being suppressed. You mm -hmm. know, they, they, they didn't want the Indians to still have a sense of belonging. You hear, you hear about this in all the right. countries. To worship the pagan gods. Correct. Yeah. That, that the indigenous culture is, is, is deemed, you know, savage or, mm -hmm. or, or unclean. Because that happened, a lot of our culture 
disappeared. And I have other friends who are still part of um, trying to keep that memory alive, whether it's art or talking about the importance of like certain ingredients, corn, chocolate, things that were indigenous to our, our, our culture. My father, my grandfather on my father's side was a little Indian man. He was short with really dark chocolate skin and a little, a little sharp nose. You know, I wish I would have gotten to know my ancestors who had more of that lineage. Being Latina, having that connection, and I think there are a lot of us who, even though we were born in the United States, were drawn to having a connection to our, our ancestors. And Day of the Dead was a really important way for us to have that direct connection and being able to talk about them and embrace our history. If you've been going to Dia de los Muertos celebrations in Fruitvale, or San Francisco's Mission District, or many other cities across the nation in recent years, you've probably noticed more and more non-Latino people in the crowds. In 2014, one of the most popular animated films, The Book of Life, was all about Dia de los Muertos. It introduced Calavera imagery and indigenous icons to a whole new generation of young Americans. Similarly to how Tina has generally positive feelings about Los Estados Unidos embracing Mexican food, she also thinks that the growing popularity of this holiday is a good thing, as long as it's handled respectfully. I think over the years, as a country, we've experienced a lot of loss mm -hmm. because of wars. And I always thank my mother and, and her mother for giving me such a healthy outlook on death. You're born and you live and you die and, and it's important to have a reverence for, for all the history and Day of the Dead allows us to touch on that in a really healthy way. And, and even though I remember when I would first have to explain Day of the Dead, you know, people was like, is it voodoo? Is it, is it scary? Are skeletons going to jump out and attack me? And I was like, no, actually. <laughs> she's laughing because she had to hear me tell people. It's like, no, it's a celebration of life. Right. And we use the calaveras and we use all these symbols because we are, it's our, it, they are people who have passed on. But they're here to visit, and we're going to celebrate who they are. Mm -hmm. And I think that culturally, we needed that as, as Latinos, but I think we also need that as Americans. The La Boricana building is located on the edge of a neighborhood that is now known as Old Oakland. Tina didn't just spend many years working in this area. She also lives here in an old Victorian house that her father purchased in 1958 for $11,000. She told me that back then, this neighborhood is where a lot of Oakland's working class people came to do their shopping. The wealthier people shopped in Uptown, in stores like iMagnon and Cons. You were much more likely to find immigrants and people of color in places like Housewives and later Swan's Market. It, where the um, condos are right here, Market Square. Mm -hmm. It was a huge one block building and it had a meat counter, a seafood counter, dried beans, a little um, restaurant, like a diner. And they were all independent. They were all independent, yeah, but yeah. all in one building. Yeah. And you would see, you know, working, poor, middle class, but then you could buy any part, piece, hoof, snout. You would see, you know, the mama with 12 kids mm -hmm. buying tripe or buying, you know, the assorted parts and pieces mm -hmm. that she could make into something delicious. Mm -hmm. Thinking back on what used to be here, Tina's memory is like a four-dimensional atlas of the past. She can look at a corner and not only tell you what used to be there, but bring it all back to life in a vivid way. Where Endgame is mm -hmm. on the corner right by the convention center, that was ladies' lingerie. Mm -hmm. So every time I walk into Endgame, mm -hmm. 
Brazier pops in my head because I was a little kid surrounded by braziers. Now I'm surrounded by games, but it's just kind of fun to have those moments of I remember when. Here's Tina explaining how the name Old Oakland came to be attached to this section of the city. In the 70s, people, owners, landlords, all the Victorians mm -hmm. over here were, were rehabbed. And um, some, on some of the maps, it still says Old Town because this was the original downtown. And um, even Old Man's Park or Wino Park or Junkie Park, now known as Lafayette Square Park, mm -hmm. was the original Chabot Observatory. And that's why there's a mound in the middle because that's where the telescope went up. But as it became city, meaning light, artificial lights, they had to move up to East Oakland. So when you really understand like the history of the neighborhood and that this was the original downtown, this is where the Victorians still are, we became Old Oakland. Um, as a business owner, I liked having that sense of identity because um, West Oakland, uptown, downtown, all have very distinct personalities. Um, you know, you, you hear people talk about, you know, microclimates. We have micro neighborhoods. With the reincarnation of Swan's Market as one of the hippest places to eat in Oakland, along with the quaint vibe from all the gorgeously rehabbed houses and the new condos, all just blocks away from downtown BART, this isn't exactly an affordable, let alone working class neighborhood anymore. I asked Tina how she feels about the downsides to all this development and the wider epidemic of displacement happening in Oakland and across the Bay in places like the Mission. Here in our community, since it was destroyed so long ago in the late 60s, early 70s, and became a ghost town, I was excited to see new community members move in because it was empty of life. So seeing that actually brought me joy. I don't have a problem with redevelopment as long as no one's being pushed out. Unfortunately, that's what's happening in the mission. Mm -hmm. And it's being done in a very ugly, deceitful mm -hmm. way. I think when people come into a community, and I've been saying this over and over again, when, especially the, the new transplants to Oakland, the new, new Oakland. If you come into my community and you want to be a part of it, you want to lend some threads to the fabric. You want to weave yourself in. I respect it. You come into Oakland, you come into any one of our communities, because, and you want to change it to suit you, that's ugly. That's wrong. La Boricana finally closed its doors for good on July 31st, 2015. They retired right as Oakland is hitting this new peak of economic activity, at a time when so many new people are moving here. Over the past year or two, there's been a flurry of family restaurants that have been around for many decades, all shutting down. Besides La Boricana, Genova Deli, Francesco's, Art's Crab Shack, and Dorsey's Locker have all called it quits. One thing that is particularly ironic about all these restaurants closing now is that quote-unquote authenticity has become a fashionable concept among foodies in recent years. So many new restaurants strive to convey a sense of authenticity in all these different ways with faux working class or ethnic decor or whatever, and it's clearly resonating with their customers. However, at the same time, the restaurants that really are authentic, at least the ones that have been around the longest, are going out of business all over the place. I asked Tina if she felt like the kinds of people moving to Oakland now are more attracted to the concept of authenticity than the real thing. Her answer, it wasn't what I expected, but it really blew me away. Before we closed, I would have agreed with you 100%. What was interesting after we announced that we were closing and we started getting um, the articles and we were, we were even on the news, 
and showing what we did and how we did it, we were getting all these brand new young people the last two weeks going, I wish I would have known about you sooner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, this is my first time here and we're closing in two days. You know? <laughs> and we were just kind of like, well, where have you been? <laughs> well, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And, and I think back to it's, it's, you don't know what you're missing till it's gone. Mm-hmm. And we have like the customers that had been with us for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And then sometimes we would see families after someone had passed and they were coming in to kind of reminisce. There was one gentleman who would come and buy uh, pork rinds. The the man with the three-piece suit and the cigar, what was his name? Okay, he was Gus's son. Yeah, Gus, he was like, Gus's son. I go, okay, Gus's son. And he was 96. He'll always be Gus's son. He'll always be Gus's son. <laughs> and, and he was his darling to me. He yeah. would go, hey, how, how you doing, darling? He goes, ah, I'm doing great, sweetie. And he would come with his cigar and buy his, his fried pork rinds. And then he disappeared. And then one day there was a family sitting eating, and they called me over. And they're like, you're part of the family. I go, yes. And then they started talking about their grandpa. And I go, oh, I know your grandpa. I go, he disappeared six months ago. What mm-hmm. happened? He, go, he got sick. He passed last week. Mm-hmm. But they were just so happy that I knew their grandpa. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah, he would come and see me all the time and buy his pork skins, his, his cracklings. Mm-hmm. And, and it, was, it was just back to that sense of neighborhood, mm-hmm. that sense of community. Mm-hmm. I think people move around so much. Mm-hmm. It's so easy for people to change where they, what they call, where they call home. Mm-hmm. There isn't that same stability of, of being very aware of your surroundings. Um, that's part of the reason why I'm, I'm part of the localist movement of supporting independent. You, we call them mom and pops, but they're independent businesses because mm-hmm. it could be brother and sister. It could be cousin and cousin. But understanding that when it's not corporate, when it's a family, when this family is dependent on this business for it's not their career, it's their livelihood. It's how, it's not just how they pay the bills, it's who they are. And even though the artisan movement is really bringing that to light, I think sometimes when you've been around for so long, I don't want to come across angry. I'm going to be a little bitter. You're overlooked. There's one more conflict this story really raises. I asked Tina what she thinks about this end of the era of old school, family-owned restaurants that Oakland is going through right now, and I'm going to let her have the final word. But before I share her thoughts with you, I want you to think about how each of us is torn between our own individualism and our connections to our families and our communities. Those real social networks, the ones that are bonded by blood, not cliques. Because now it's easier than ever for people to break off and do their own thing. And there are certainly lots of good things about that. But that freedom, it comes at a price. Here's Tina Ramos. The passing down in the legacy is what's going to be lost. Mm-hmm. Because it's not going from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's sad. Because, you know, when you hear about, you know, this is what I do, this is what my dad did, this is what my grandfather did, or in our case, it descended down the women, yeah. you know? When I tell people I was a third-generation Tamale girl, like three generations, three generations. We are mm-hmm. actually, we were on our fourth, mm-hmm. but the world changed, and we decided that we all needed to go down our own path, and, and it's bittersweet, bittersweet, but as long as people don't forget about us, mm-hmm. And we won't forget them. No. We see no. Our, our old customers everywhere. Yeah. They're, we're always my, so happy to My see grandson them. wanders around a lot, and he says people meet him, and they tell him, how's your grandma, how's the family, how's this, how's that? Yeah. We don't have a, a landing pad. Yeah. That's the one thing we didn't. We knew we were going to lose having a business that was open, mm-hmm. but we, the reality of, of we could always be found. Mm-hmm. That's gone now. Mm-hmm. It exists somewhat online because I'm still keeping up our website and our and our social media. 
but that that whole where someone could just show up and we hadn't seen them in 20 years mm-hmm. but it was like we they still get a hug and a mm-hmm. and a and, and a plate of food because mm-hmm. you know we're just so happy to see them again mm-hmm. we we don't we don't have that anymore and that's been hard Thanks for listening to East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. For this episode, I want to thank Tina and Natividad and the whole Ramos family. I also want to thank Luke Sai of the East Bay Express and C.B. Smith Dahl. You might hear some sirens in the background, but it happens to me constantly while I'm recording this podcast, so I'm just going to keep talking and, I don't know, it's Oakland. Uh, As always, I want to give a shout out to everybody who is working hard to keep Oakland history alive through projects like the Oakland Wiki, the Oakland Cultural Heritage Survey, the Oakland Heritage Alliance, the History Room at the Oakland Library, and Annalee Allen, who leads some wonderful historical walking tours all about Oakland. Thanks again to Front Group Design for the East Bay Yesterday logo. And thanks to everybody who has been helping to spread the word about East Bay Yesterday. You guys are the only way this show will continue to grow. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to share it. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And leave a comment or a rating. It means a lot. If you know someone who should be listening to the show, but doesn't really grasp how podcast technology works, do a good deed today and show them how to listen. If you have feedback on today's show or you want to suggest a topic for a future episode, drop me a line on the social media channel of your choice. Also, music for this episode came from El Hijo de la Cumbia, El Remolón, and Javier Quijas Yayotl. Please support these amazing artists. One more thing. This little clip didn't really fit into the episode, but it's too good not to be shared. I'm kind of hoping that an enterprising producer might sample this and put it on a dope beat. Feast your ears. (laughs) Yeah, because when they ask you where you're from and I tell them, West Oakland.